Let us open our Bibles to Acts chapter 19, for this is the place to begin this morning, although we are entering the last section of the book of Acts, which begins in chapter 21, all the way through chapter 28. Before we get there, though, I want to set the, the context for you. For Acts 19, verse 21, is the explanation for what takes place in chapters 21 through 28. So Acts 19, verse 21, while in Ephesus and after the word of God had prevailed there mightily through the conversion of many, many Gentiles, we read the following. This is what happened. Verse 21. Now, after these events in Ephesus, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go where? To Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there. In Jerusalem, I must also see Rome. In chapter 21, which you can go now, verse 16 and 17, Paul arrives in Jerusalem. From then on, all the circumstances will lead to Paul's dangerous trip to Rome, which will begin in chapter 27, verse 1, and will take us all the way to the end of the book. So in terms of geography, we have Jerusalem. And Rome are central to this unit. In terms of people, we have the Jews and the Romans as central to this unit. But what about the theme? What about the theme? What is the central theme that ties all these chapters, 21 through 28, together all the way to the end? Well, you would remember for five Sundays, the central theme of our meditations was nothing but the Nothing but the blood. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, we were told that with his blood, the Lord Jesus actually and effectively purchased, obtained the church. He bought us with his blood. He purchased everyone who has believed, who is believing, and who will believe in him. He purchased us. His death achieved everything necessary for our redemption. Praise the Lord for his blood. But the historical event that proved the perfect efficacy of his death took place three days later. While the cross of Jesus says, you are redeemed, you are forgiven, you are reconciled to God. The empty tomb of Jesus says, here's the undeniable proof. The death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus belong to one and the same work of redemption, never to be separated. What I mean is this, the death of Jesus earned our forgiveness and peace with God, but his resurrection from the dead confirms that Jesus has the authority and has the power to grant the blessings of forgiveness and reconciliation to his people. He died. Yes, but he was also raised from the dead. As Peter says in Acts chapter 2 verse 24, death simply could not hold him down. The resurrection of Jesus happened like this. God the Father looked down on the, on the lifeless body of his son and spoke to death saying, death, get your hands off of my son. And immediately death lost its grip 
on Jesus. Or as the hymn says, death in vain forbids him what? Rise. His physical body was brought back to life. He physically left the tomb empty forever. Forever. The Lord Jesus will never die again. His physical body is now indestructible, immortal, eternal. He is forever the God-man seated at the right hand of the Father right now, having all authority in heaven and on earth. For five Sundays, our focus was nothing but the blood of Jesus. Beginning today and for the next several Sundays, we will rejoice together because he lives. Because he lives. In this sense, each sermon will be a type of filling the blanks. Because he lives, we can fill in the blanks. Now, allow me to show you from the scriptures themselves why we will do this. As I said, Paul is now determined to go to two places, Jerusalem, which is the heart of the Jewish Christian community, and Rome, which is the heart of the Gentile world. Once in Jerusalem, Paul will encounter severe, severe sufferings, in particular at the hands of the Jews. Why? What did the Jews have against the apostle Paul? Why did they make his life so difficult? They had one main accusation against Paul made up of three parts. We find the summary of this accusation in chapter 21, verse 28. I want you to look at that verse with me. Chapter 21, verse 28. Soon we will see the Jews from Asia, where Paul had been, coming to Jerusalem. There, they will find Paul in the temple. They will take hold of Paul. And they will cry out the following. Men of Israel, help. This is the man, speaking of Paul, who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. There you have it. Their accusation against Paul was that he was teaching against the Jews, against the law of Moses, and against the temple. One accusation made up of three Parts, And that was the reason for their persecution of Paul. He is anti-Jew, he is anti-Moses, and he is anti-Temple. So Paul defended himself. But how? How did Paul understand and answer those accusations from the Jews? According to Paul himself, all his trials at the hands of the Jews, which we will see in the weeks to come, all their hatred... All their violence against them will have to do with one main doctrine. Let's see it with our own eyes. Follow me as I show you. We see it first in chapter 23, verse 6. Chapter 23, verse 6. As Paul stood on trial before the Jewish council known as the Sanhedrin, we read, Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees. He cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee and a son of a Pharisee. It is with respect to the hope and the, what? Resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Look next, chapter 24, verse 15, and then verse 21. 
This is a different trial. And we find Paul saying in verse 15 that he has a hope in God, which these men, the Jews, themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Look down to verse 21, the second half. It is with respect to what? The resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. Are you getting a pattern? Look now at chapter 25, verse 19. In a conversation between two Roman officials, one says to the other that the dispute, the fighting between Paul and the Jews was about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be what? Alive. If you're not convinced still, go to chapter 26. And let's read in verses 6, 7, and 8. Here's Paul once again saying, And now I stand here on trial, on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by the Jews, O king. What is the hope, Paul? What hope are you talking about? He explains it. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God does what? Raises the dead. Are you getting the pattern? One more proof. Look at the same chapter. Verse 22 and 23. Same chapter. Look at what Paul says. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. What would come to pass, Paul? That the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Not convinced yet? Go to chapter 28. The very last chapter of Acts. Paul is now in Rome. And in verse 20, Paul says, For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. By now, we know what the hope of Israel is, right? The hope of Israel is nothing more than the resurrection of the dead. Undeniably, then, the resurrection was the central issue and the very reason for his sufferings in both Jerusalem and Rome. The resurrection ties all these chapters together, both the persecution of the Jews against Paul and his defense against that persecution revolved around the resurrection. But we see in Paul a man who pressed forward why be precisely because jesus lives and brothers and sisters he does amen jesus lives jesus died once for our sins but he will never die again therefore what we will find in this last unit of acts is this Paul did not preach against the Jews or against the law of Moses or against the temple as his Jewish enemies claimed. Instead, listen to this, this is critical. 
Paul understood the Jews and the law of Moses and the temple in light of the resurrection of Jesus. For Paul, Jesus and him risen from the dead is the key to all of God's revelation, all of it. But we will get into the deeper waters one step at a time. Let us now read our passage before us this morning in Acts 21, verses 1 through 16. Now we can begin the sermon. (laughs) Just kidding. Just kidding. Chapter 21, verse 1. And when we had parted from them, meaning the elders in Miletus, we saw that last week, and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went abroad and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemy's, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt And bound his own feet and hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and says, let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. Here's the first fill in the blanks for you. Because he lives... We can rejoice in supernatural unity. Because he lives, we can rejoice in supernatural unity. Do you see it? When you read through the book of Acts in general, and this section in particular, do you see it? Our passage mentions many cities, but only one body. Many cities, one body. First, In the western part of Asia, Kos, which was directly to the south of Miletus, where Paul had met with the Ephesian elders. Then Rhodes, which was an island to the southeast of Kos. Then Patera, which was a small city in the extreme uh, south portion of a region called Lycia. And then from there to Syria. But to get to Syria, they had to go across the Mediterranean Sea, a very long journey. 
And as they did, they saw the island of Cyprus where the gospel of Jesus had already entered during Paul's first missionary journey. And then finally came to Syria and landed first at Tyre, then went south to Ptolemies and then south again to Caesarea. But notice what Paul did in most of those cities. He went and the first thing he did was to go find the disciples, also called the brothers. First, we saw Paul leaving the brothers in Miletus back in Asia with whom he did what? He prayed and he cried with them. Then he found more brothers in Tyre, in Syria, with whom also he prayed. Then he found even more brothers in Ptolemies and in Caesarea. In all these cities, they met with many Christians from very different cultures and very different backgrounds, including Philip, one of the original deacons of the church, as we learn in Acts chapter 6. He was the first man to take the gospel to Samaria and the first man to share the gospel with an African man, the eunuch. Do you see the beauty in this? Embedded in the narrative itself is the glorious reality. Don't miss this. Embedded in the narrative of Acts itself is the glorious reality that the temple of God is not a building, but a people. Are you seeing it? Embedded in the narrative itself is this glorious reality that the temple of God is not a structure, is not a building, but a people. Paul now has fellowship with people from all over the world, everywhere in the world. Because Jesus lives. Because Jesus lives. Acts is showing us in actual history, through actual geography, and with actual people, a grand picture of the new temple of God made without hands, but by the power of the risen Lord Jesus. Therefore, the narrative itself begins to answer one of the Jewish accusations against Paul, namely that he spoke against the temple. Paul didn't speak against the temple. Rather, he simply understood the resurrection of Jesus as the historical event that inaugurated the true, the new spirit-made temple, which is the worldwide community of believers in whom God dwells. And the glory of this temple far surpasses the glory of the temple in Jerusalem since it is made out of living Stones. And all those disciples that Paul met, beginning in Miletus, and Tyre, and Ptolemy, and Caesarea, were the living stones, members of the body of Christ. As we saw in Acts chapter 7, and the testimony of Stephen, the temple in Jerusalem, what was the problem? What, what was the problem that the Jews had with the temple in Jerusalem? We saw it in Acts chapter 7. Do you, do you remember? Like two years ago? What was the problem? Well, Stephen showed us that for the Jews, the temple had become what? An idol. The temple had become an idol for the Jews. They wanted to keep it as the central place of worship to the true God. But as Jesus had already prophesied to the woman at the well, you remember that conversation? A time would come, said Jesus, when true worshipers would no longer worship in Jerusalem. 
A time would come when the true worshipers of the true God would worship not in an ancient temple, but in a new reality, namely in spirit and in truth. This is what the book of Acts is showing us. By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus poured out the Holy Spirit, where? Into all the world. And now people in Miletus, Asia, and people in the islands of Kos and Rhodes, and people all around the Mediterranean Sea, including Petra, Cyprus, Tyre's, Ptolemy, Caesarea, can turn away from worthless idols and worship the true and living God because the risen Jesus calls them to himself all over the world. It is all because he lives. Praise the risen Lord. But not only can we rejoice in supernatural unity, because he lives, secondly, because he lives, we can overcome the fear of suffering and death. Because he lives, we can overcome the fear of suffering and death. As the well-known hymn says, because he lives, some fear is gone. Is that what it says? Because he lives, most fear is gone. No, it says because he lives, all Fear is gone. This was descriptive of the Apostle Paul. Can you say the same? Because Jesus lives, all fear is gone. This was descriptive of the Apostle Paul. Not that he was never tempted to fear. He was. We saw Paul wrestling with fear in Corinth. The Lord himself had to come and encourage and strengthen him. Jesus himself told Paul, do not fear. But the overall disposition of Paul was to fearlessness. Sadly, this is not the way of most Christians. Most of us struggle with fear. Amen? Amen. That was a weak amen. I noticed that. We have no problem singing. We have no problem singing. Because he lives, all fear is gone. We can even raise our hands, close our eyes. But living consistently with those words is another issue. And we see in our passage this ongoing struggle. Notice first how there was consistent revelation accompanied by inconsistent interpretation. Consistent revelation Accompanied by inconsistent revelation. Let me explain. Where is the consistent revelation? In Caesarea, just northwest of Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit revealed through a prophet named Agabus that Paul would suffer in Jerusalem. We see that in verse 11. He will be bound and turned over to the Romans. That is exactly what took place. How is this consistent revelation? Well, you will remember that in the book of Acts, both Jesus and the Spirit had already revealed to Paul that he would suffer for the sake of the gospel. Do you remember that? First, it was the Lord Jesus himself who made known to Paul through Ananias how much he must suffer for the sake of my name, said Jesus in Acts 9, verse 16. And then in chapter 20, 
Verse 22 and 23, Paul said, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. And the Spirit, said Paul, testifies to me that imprisonment and afflictions await me. What Agabus, the prophet, was saying was not new prophecy. Paul had known that he would suffer for a long time. Jesus and the Spirit both revealed this to Paul. But Christians can often misinterpret divine revelation, especially when it involves suffering. So the revelation coming from the Spirit was perfectly consistent, but the interpretation of it was not, which takes us to the next thing we see in our passage. Well-meaning words, bad counsel. Well-meaning words, bad counsel. Twice in our passage, we see the Christian community saying, Paul, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't go to Jerusalem. First, we see it in verse 4, while they were in Tyre. And then we see it again in verse 12, while they were in Caesarea. In both instances, the Christians were telling Paul, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Paul, whatever you do, don't go to Jerusalem. You're going to suffer in Jerusalem. Does this remind you of someone else's attitude in the Bible? It reminded me of Peter. Do you remember the story of Peter? When he heard that Jesus was going to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the Jews and be killed, what did Peter say? What did Peter say? Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Now, of course, we don't want to be too harsh on Peter. Neither do we want to be too harsh on those Christians who sought to dissuade Paul of exposing himself to suffering. Their words were well-meaning. Paul, we don't want you to suffer. And that's what's interesting. In the case of Peter with Jesus and these Christians with Paul, their intentions were the same. Keep a loved one away from suffering. Can we blame them? Keep a loved one from suffering. We cannot blame them. Well-meaning words. But well-meaning words, no matter how well-meaning, can quickly turn into bad counsel when they stand in contradiction to divine revelation. So here's what we see next. In the face of real danger, we see in Paul, resurrection, resolve. In the face of real danger, we see in Paul, resurrection, resolve. Paul replies to their well-meaning words saying in verse 13, What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. You know what that is? Verse 13. That is Paul's way of saying, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Paul's words are a gentle rebuke. Their well-meaning words were bad counsel for they were rooted in a fleshly carnal view of life. Like Peter, these Christians were not setting their minds on the things of God, but of man. Moreover, Paul was seeking to operate 
in view of God's clear revelation to him. A revelation that had not been, that had been revealed to those Christians as well. Notice what they concluded in verse 14. What did they say to Paul? That the will of the Lord be done. It's not very easy to interpret what they meant. Were they saying, let us entrust Paul to the Lord's will, whatever that might be? Or were they saying, let us submit ourselves to what we already know to be the Lord's will? I think based on verses 4 and 12, I believe the second option is the correct one. They already knew the Lord's will for Paul, but they were resisting it. Thankfully, Paul confronted that resistance with resurrection resolve. I am ready to suffer, said Paul, even to die because Jesus defeated death. So in verse 16, Paul and his companions make it to Jerusalem where they were received by a disciple named Nathan. So here's the question. What do we do with what we just heard? Here are a few simple takeaways for us. Things upon which you are invited to invest further meditation. Here's number one. Because Jesus lives, we have unity that transcends geography, language, and culture. Because Jesus lives, we have unity that transcends geography, language, and culture. What we are experiencing here and now, as we gather in this place, as the people of God, with a common faith in the Lord Jesus, this in and of itself, brothers and sisters, is a reality created by the resurrected Lord. We are here because Jesus lives. That not only means that we are here because we believe that he is risen, but also that we are here because the risen Christ has brought us together by his spirit's power. Every believer around you this morning is his work, is his work. Do not neglect the gathering of the church for in it, we are reminded of the ongoing work of the resurrected Lord Jesus. We are Christians because he lives and we have a common bond with all believers everywhere in the world. Here's the second takeaway for us. Because Jesus lives, we have confidence that our own sufferings are purposeful. Because Jesus lives, we have confidence that our own sufferings are purposeful. Like Peter with Jesus, and like these Christians with Paul, let us be honest here. One of the hardest lessons for Christians to learn is that there is a very important place for suffering as we journey toward the celestial city. This is one of the hardest lessons for Christians to learn. That there is an important place for suffering in the Christian life. Why does God allow suffering? Well, I think that's the wrong question. The real question that Christians need to ask themselves is, why do we question the risen Lord as if our sufferings were not in his hands? Why do we question the risen Lord as if our sufferings were not in his hands? 
Go with me to Romans chapter 5. I want to show you something quite astonishing. Romans chapter 5. The Apostle Paul says something quite astonishing about suffering in these verses. Verses 3 and 4. Listen to what Paul says. We rejoice in our what? In our sufferings. We rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Well, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces what? Hope. After reading those two verses, let me ask you this. Do you want to be a person of Christ-like character and a person of hope? Amen? Yes, you want that for yourself? After reading these passages, you still want that? Let me read them again. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces what? Character. Now, you just said you want to be a person of character. And character produces what? Hope. You also want to be a person of hope. You want both, right? You want character and you want hope. Are you committed to those things? Are you committed to being a person of Christ-like character and resurrection hope? Is that what you want for your life? You see, we need to be clear about this. The Lord Jesus is not committed to making us people who are vain and empty. He doesn't want that for you. The Lord Jesus is committed to forming character and hope in you. Therefore, guess what? Suffering will be a part of our journey because we need endurance to run the race. And just like you cannot ask for patience without the opportunity to exercise patience, so you cannot desire maturity of character and hope apart from sufferings. Paul was not looking for sufferings, but he understood their purpose. Do we? And here's number three. Here's the third and final. Because Jesus lives, we have assurance that death is not the end. We have assurance that death is not the end. It is difficult to match or surpass the example of Paul as a man of absolute resolve, even in the face of death. As we read in Acts chapter 20, verse 24, Paul did not count his life as precious to him. He said that. Why? Because Jesus was precious to him. And Jesus had died once and risen again for the sake of Paul. Therefore, Paul rested upon the power, upon the love, and upon the calling of his crucified and risen Lord. He rested by faith. But the history of the Christian church is also filled with examples of men and women who gave their lives for the cause of Christ with resurrection resolve. And to one of those examples, I now turn. This is one that I have mentioned before, but it is worth mentioning again. Two missionaries named John Williams and James Harris from the London 
missionary society came to a place known as the New Hebrides, which was a chain of islands in the South Pacific. They arrived there in the year 1839 to bring the gospel to the natives inhabiting that place. Very shortly after they arrived on November 20th of that same year, John and James were both killed and then eaten, for the natives were cannibals. Forty-eight years later, another missionary named John Payton resolved to go to the same place to take the gospel of Jesus to the same people that had killed the two missionaries from London. But as he was making preparations to go there, raising support, Peyton encountered great discouragement. In one meeting in particular, in which plans were being developed for Peyton's journey to the New Hebrides, this happened. A Mr. Dixon, with a fresh memory of the horrific deaths of John and James, said to John Peyton, The cannibals, John, you will be eaten by cannibals. And that was not a false statement. In fact, it was known to be absolutely true. In a way reminiscent to Paul's resolve to go to Jerusalem and his brothers discouraging him from going, John Payton is here faced with a hard truth. The possibility of following John and James in their horrific deaths was very, very real. This was no joke. But showing resurrection hope and resurrection resolve, here's what Peyton said to Mr. Dixon. And I quote, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now. And your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. End quote. My Christian brother and sister, the truth is that you are going to die. Sooner or later, your body will be placed in the grave. Its current strength will be fully and completely gone. No matter how young, how beautiful or strong you might be now, your body will return to the dust. And there you will be eaten by worms. The only question I would like to ask as we finish is this. Are you approaching that day as a man or a woman living with resurrection resolve? Do you know that because of Christ Jesus, the dead will be raised incorruptible and that in our new bodies, we will see the Lord. If yes, then my invitation is simple. Then labor. Stay busy. Serve the Lord all the days of your life, in your family, in school, with your friends, at work, in the church, and abroad. Why? 
Because he lives. And in the risen Lord, your labor is not in vain. But time is short, isn't it? Death is coming to us all. But, Christian, we will be raised at the last day. So let us live like people who believe that death is not the end. Something unimaginably better is coming because he lives. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for the hope of the resurrection. We thank you that Jesus died for our sins once. But three days later, he rose again. And now the very tomb that held his body is now empty forever. Help us to be a people who, like Paul, have resurrection resolve. Help us to live our lives in light of the resurrection. Help us to make the most of the days that you've given us because the Lord Jesus lives. And so encourage us, Lord, by your spirit and your word to serve you all the days of our lives, knowing that every single moment is in your hands. So we praise you for the testimony of Scripture and for the encouragement that we get from it. Father, we long for the day when we will see Jesus face to face. We long for the day in which we will stand in our new glorified bodies and see him face to face. But until then, help us to be faithful to him. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.